everyone, welcome to Blunderphonics, where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. I'm Jack Durback. I am a very apologetic Spencer Faust. I've, I, I didn't know, Jack. We did something bad. I didn't know my words had this power. For those who don't know, our last episode was on Daniel Johnson. And the day after we uploaded our episode, he unfortunately passed away due to a heart attack. And within 24 hours of putting some, let's just say, some goofy critique of his his life and legacy, I promise we're not going to try and kill Paul McCartney today. I am going to be recording this entire episode with a fear deep within my soul that I'm going to kill either Paul McCartney or Ringo Starr, two of the members of one of my favorite bands of all time. And if I'm responsible, even though... I can't help but play with Ouija boards and do black magic. I'm trying to stop. <laughs> it's it's hard because the only way we've actually... The lowest latency recording interface that we've found is actually a Ouija board and a planchette hooked up to <laughs> our equipment. So Spencer actually passed away, so I'm actually having to talk to him through the afterlife. As a side effect, we do tend to put a voodoo curse on every episode. And I will say this. I don't think we can kill Paul McCartney because he's already dead. There, I'll say Oh it. my God. That's your one hackneyed joke for this episode. <laughs> All right, Jack, where do we start? Where do we start on the White Album? Well, Spencer, we are going to start exactly where you expect us to start. That's right. We're going to be talking about India. Yep, that's exactly what I... Hang on, take it back. Spencer, have you ever seen Return of the Jedi? Jack, stop. You're, that's... <laughs> no, have, do you know how that movie starts with... Everyone going on Jabba's giant orgy boat and killing him just to save Han Solo. And the rest of the movie has nothing to do with that. Now that you mention it, that's kind of a weird segue that movie takes, isn't it? We're going to kind of cop that first act situation and go to India to talk about the White Album. For those who don't know, the Beatles are this uh, kind of influential British rock group. Uh, they, they might be known as the greatest band of all time. For those who don't know, please... <laughs> Please, go sit. You've been in a coma for 70 years, please. For those who don't know, I don't know how you're even listening to a music podcast without knowing you, who they are. You found a podcast without finding the Beatles. I applaud you. <laughs> you're an enigma. Anyways, one of the greatest albums they ever recorded is known by the name of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Feels like editorializing, Jack. I mean, dial it down. <laughs> they recorded Sgt. Pepper under the influence of LSD and drugs and craziness, and that album is kind of seen as the album that spoke to 1967. It's kind of seen as the cornerstone of music. It's seen as this monolithic, drug-infused, psychedelic experience. And we are hopping shortly right after, we are starting right after that album comes out, and the Beatles get all of this recognition for being this incredible studio band. Now, George Harrison, one of the Beatles, the lead guitarist, was becoming increasingly fascinated with Indian spirituality shortly after the release of Sgt. Pepper. And the sitar. That, that's right. He's been experimenting with the sitar and incorporating Indian music into his compositions. You could hear this in Love You Too off their 1966 album Revolver. You can hear it off of the song Within You and Without You on Sgt. Pepper. And at this point, after the release of Sgt. Pepper, he's like, come on, guys, we need to take a road trip to India. Let's start learning how to meditate. When you live in England, that's not a road trip. I think a boat or a plane plays a part in it, but 
that semantics. Um, that's also just such a wild hair up your ass thing to throw at your friends. George Harrison was super into everything India, and he managed to convince the rest of the band to eventually make a trip there. And he even convinced their manager, Brian Epstein, to go with them. Unfortunately, Brian Epstein died after taking a few too many sleeping pills and mixing it with alcohol and kind of ruined that first planned trip. You know, it's, it's kind of a mood kill when you plan a vacation and one of the vacationees dies. Well, I mean, you've heard the conspiracy theory that Brian Epstein was actually hung by the prison guards, right? You've heard that one? Oh, my God. No, I didn't even realize he was arrested. Well, I heard that floating around, you know. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, their manager died. And this was actually a little bit of a big deal. Brian was kind of referenced as the fifth Beatle. He was the guy who convinced them to stop wearing leather jackets and playing music for chicken at a bar and told them, hey, you should get matching suits, look nice and clean cut so everyone loves you. And, you know, he's he's somewhat responsible for the image you think of when you think of the Beatles. Can I say that similar to the vein of blank is the Brian Wilson of blank, uh, I'm kind of sick of fifth Beatle being thrown around. I've seen that in <laughs> in any... This guy that served them fried chicken, oh my God, he was like the fifth Beatle. It makes me think that the Beatle is actually like, there's like 30 members. At a certain point, you have to say, no, sorry, you're not the fifth anymore. You have to there's, be the seventh. Well, there are about like 30 or 40 members of the Beatles family. And what's insane is everybody after Ringo is tied for fifth place. <laughs> It's like if Slipknot was like number zero, number one, number five, number five, number five. Anyways, unfortunately, that kind of put a damper on the first India trip. So instead, they decided to stick around England and record the movie Magical Mystery Tour, which wasn't very well received in terms of the movie itself. But the soundtrack was kind of seen as Sgt. Pepper 2. You get Strawberry Fields Forever. You get Penny Lane. You get all more all the more psychedelic goodness for you. Mm-hmm. And it would be known as the last time the Beatles fucked around with LSD. Because George yeah. Harrison found that meditation gives you everything you need to get high. Sure. Okay. First of all, sure. Second, um, <laughs> one of the more recent episodes of The Cock and Bull touches on a guy named Banana Bill Sheffield, who does a documentary on all of these famous people that he can meet, some of which include the King of Thailand and the Beatles Maharashi, the dude that convinced George Harrison that, yes, you don't need drugs when you can just kind of sit. And we will be getting into Maharashi Yogi very much. I didn't know he was coming. Okay, sweet. I'm strapping in. He plays a very integral role in the first act of the White Album. You could refer to him as our Jabba the Hutt, if you will, to go back to the uh, analogy. Oh, I don't want to know who Slave Leia is. <laughs> They're all, so, <laughs> all of them were so hairy. Spoiler alert, it's Mia Farrow. But anyways, when George Harrison finally was like, okay, guys, Brian died. That's a bit of a bummer, but we should still go to India and meditate because all of these drugs, everything we're doing, it's all bullshit. We can just sit and get just as high. So Paul, Ringo, John, they're all like, okay, let's go take a huge trip to India. And with them, they brought 30 plus people. They brought their wives slash girlfriends. They brought reporters. A whole bunch of people from California who are very young were like, oh, the Beatles are going to go to India. They're going to learn how to meditate. That sounds pretty neat. And with them were a whole bunch of tourists that went to India just to learn about transcendental meditation, Mm. which we're going to refer to as TM from here on out. And because of the Beatles, uh, the Western... The Western civilizations all took a fascination towards meditation, 
And I would dare say that it's the Beatles' fault that New Age and, you know, goofy meditation techniques and all of that spiritual stuff ended up leaking into the Western culture. Oh, no doubt. No doubt, man. <laughs> Everybody was just like, oh, man, I could just sit and get high. This is awesome. And it was never the same. Can I just say, it must be a pain to plan your big trip to India where you have to bring both your wife and your girlfriend. That's got to be hard. <laughs> I guess I should clarify that around this time, John Lennon was in fact seeing Yoko Ono, who he met at a 1967 art showing, but he was still married to Cynthia Lennon, and he did take Cynthia on this trip. He did not take Yoko. <laughs> I really thought you were going to say he didn't take Cynthia, but took Yoko. No, no, he <laughs> took his wife. Unfortunately, he really missed Yoko, and if anything, Cynthia learned throughout the trip that she was increasingly less important to John, unfortunately. <laughs> mm. You know what, uh, before before this needs to become a talking point, I'll just put it right here. Yoko and it's not that big of a deal. They would have broken up anyway. They all couldn't stand each other towards the end. No, in fact, as we go throughout this episode, you're going to see that Yoko was more or less a catalyst for Paul McCartney to complain. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you, yeah. you will see her as kind of being the scapegoat towards a lot of animosity that would be built up within the group. Uh, but when they were going to India, you would have never guessed that. In fact, you could say that the Beatles were closer than ever during their trip to India. You could kind of see this whole uh, TM fascination with George Harrison as a way for them to sort of take a vacation together. They were getting kind of sick of performing concerts and having all these young girls just shriek over the music. They stopped touring in 1966, and they were getting increasingly burnt out on uh, all this studio experimentation. They needed a break. They needed a break. They were releasing albums like every year. Problems we all <laughs> wish we had. I'm too famous. I need to go to India. <laughs> to be fair, they were very prolific. They were releasing an album every year, sometimes two in a year. They pretty much didn't stop up until this point. This was like their first vacation. Yeah. And, and they in, kind of deserved it for making masterpieces. And it was, and not to mention, it was, in my opinion, the hardest era to record music in. They were pretty much the ones making it easier for everyone else. They were the ones who were like, we're rich and we don't like recording multiple takes. You, over there, figure out a way to just make one take 50 takes. Invent! It, it fucking worked. People invented automatic double tracking just so John Lennon didn't have to sing more than once. And it wasn't, and here's the thing, it wasn't like they weren't financially incentivizing him. It was, you were afraid John Lennon would beat the shit out of you if you didn't do it. <laughs> Or he'd just fall asleep and then you'd get in trouble because he got too tired. <laughs> oh, no, he had one of his Odin sleeps. Oh, <laughs> I hate it when John does this. Along with the Beatles, there were a few other superstar musicians and actresses who would go on this India trip, including Donovan, who would teach the Beatles some cool finger-picking guitar techniques they would utilize on the White Album, and Mia Farrow, who went with her family and just recently divorced Frank Sinatra. Uh... For, in case you don't know, she would later go on to marry Woody Allen and then have him break up with her to date his daughter that they <laughs> adopted. Uh, that, that's what she's known for. She's known for controversy and men being awful to her. Moving on. Wink, wink. <laughs> Maharashi Yogi. No, no hints here, but... Oh, no. Jack, come on. It can't get worse. <laughs> 
Also, one of the Beach Boys actually went on this trip with them. I want you to guess who. Is it Dennis? It's not. It's actually Mike Love. Dennis was interested in the experience, but Mike Love apparently was the most interested in spirituality among the Beach Boys, which I find fascinating because he's the one that sings about cars and fucking women. I was going to say, that I found the hardest. He was like the one most against the psychedelic, like, move in the Beach Boys, wasn't he? He was, and it makes me think that he thought that spirituality was, like, the real shit while drugs were just sort of, like, if you took LSD, you thought you were having, like, a spirituality movement or something and he thought that was horseshit. But, yeah, he actually became a certified meditation teacher in 1971 and he is he usually wears like indian robes like just all the time jack my eyes have rolled out of my head and into my neighbor's (laughs) house i need to go grab them real quick (laughs) he also was the one to convince the beatles to turn the song back in the ussr into a song about banging moscow girls (laughs) that line was not in there until he's like hey you know what russia's really cool but i really like the tits so thank you mike love Thank you for your wonderful contributions to music. (laughs) Thank you for your service. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, this trip was supposed to be this huge vacation, yet the Beatles were never more prolific with songwriting. John and Paul would meet up every afternoon, sneaking away from all of the rituals and all of the meditation classes and talk about each other's songs. They'd be like, hey, what have you been writing? Oh, I've been writing a ton. What have you been working on? And even Ringo, of all the Beatles, finally wrote his own solo composition to which everybody clapped and gave him a sticker. (laughs) Don't Pass Me By, which he worked on since 1963. It took him India to finally finish it. I'm going to say, that's a a long trek, but (laughs) listen, the man may not have been a a great composer back then. I'll say this, Ringo's a goddamn metronome. The dude can hit on time. He can hit stuff on time real well. And he he had a knack for making very simple but very unique drum beats and you would as we go on you'll find out that he is probably the most likable beetle he just he oh, just yeah. wants to do stuff he just likes being a part of the band oh yeah 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 and like he may not have been musically prolific we'll say he wasn't churning out masterpieces left and right but you give him you give him just 40 more years and he's gonna make the best ms paint art you've ever seen <laughs> just give him 40 more years and he'll start doing commercials for pizza hut and everything will be fine in the world and he'll turn it around and he'll eat it the wrong way <laughs> Anyways, uh, the band found themselves being incredibly creative, having expelled drugs from their system, minus marijuana. They did bring a lot of marijuana, which they weren't supposed to. They got a demerit for that. A demerit. uh, They found that marijuana was the least troublesome drug they've been taking. It just enhanced their experience rather than overwhelmed it. So they got rid of almost every drug in their system. The atmosphere within the facility where they were going through these TM courses was a very relaxed one. They, it was pretty much just like a huge Indian hangout spot where they would just sit around and like get to know each other. Donovan would sit around with a guitar and they would just, in between meditation sessions, write music and they were having a wonderful time. In fact, most of the songs you hear on the White Album, they wrote during their stay in India. They wrote about 40 songs just staying here because they felt so relaxed. They didn't have to worry about the outside world. And I think most importantly, the band had founded just before the trip a multimedia corporation called Apple Corps because they were like, hey, we made Sgt. Pepper. We can do anything. We can be businessmen. And they would sign on like artists like Badfinger that made no money. 
and it was kind of their first failure as a band. They were bleeding out money because they made a company and had no idea how to run it. So they were like, hey, this is kind of stressful. We really need this India trip, and we're really looking forward to not going back. Because I know, we've all been through those moments where we're just under a lot of stress because of our job, and we just need a little bit of a relaxation period. Yeah, yeah, we all need to run away to another continent. (laughs) You would have songs such as Dear Prudence written around this time, where John Lennon literally came up with it, practicing this finger-picking technique he learned from Donovan, to lure Prudence Pharaoh out of her room, which she had been meditating in for three weeks straight. <laughs> Mia Pharaoh was like, hey, my sis hasn't left in three weeks. Should we call a doctor? And John's like, no, no, I'll just sing a song. And then she came out. She's like, that's a nice song. <laughs> it makes me wonder if anybody ever knocked on the door or if they were just <laughs> deliberating their strategy and then someone made a loud enough noise and then she was like, ah, here I come. Also... <laughs> Was she eating? Did she did she just reach like peak zen? Maybe she was like going through like a hibernation phase where she had like a whole bunch of mangoes she harvested and just I, sat in her room and was chilling out. I think and then John starts singing a song. He's singing a song. She's like, yeah, that's pretty nice. I'll come out now. Having not bathed in three weeks. <laughs> hey, they were hot off the heels of 1967. Anything could have been happening. That's very true. Though the Beatles were closer than ever and this commune sort of method of lifestyle was really, really great for them to relax, there were some tensions that started to brew up. The Beatles were closer than ever, but one of the Beatles was trying to keep tabs on the business side of everything. That Beatle is Paul McCartney. You see, with the passing of Brian, the Beatles didn't have a manager, and pretty much everyone except for Paul just wanted to relax for a little bit. But Paul was thinking, uh, we need to figure out what what our next step is. We need to figure out what the next album is going to be, how we're going to release it. Apple Core is being flushed down the toilet while we're sitting here. And after the trip, he would go on to say that, honestly, the other Beatles just went on this trip out of support for George's thing. He really didn't think the meditation lifestyle was that big of a deal. He was like, eh, the drugs were fine. The drugs were fine. Also, you're the (laughs) Beatles. You have so much money. Just hire a guy. Why does this have to be your problem? I I think a lot of their success was going to their heads at the time. Because like I said, they thought they could do anything. They made their own business just for it to crumble beneath their very eyes. Success going to the heads of the Beatles? This is the first I've heard of it. (laughs) Paul probably thought, hey, I'm probably the best of the Beatles. I can handle this. Me and John do a lot of the work. So, yeah, I'll go ahead and take over. So he would constantly talk about business. He would bring his guitar around and be like, this is the new song I'm working on for the next album. And while the songwriting aspect was a good part of the trip, George was getting increasingly pissed off with Paul's uh, seemingly lack of empathy towards his passion of Transcendental meditation. Paul, you He's can't. Like, Dude. You can't keep bringing LLC paperwork into the meditation <laughs> meetings. <laughs> You're he, ruining he was, my zen. <laughs> that's exactly it. He was saying, "We're not here to record the next fucking album, dude. I want to chill out. I want to sit with my monk, and I want to just relax." Want to bring Paul, so much poster board? <laughs> I want to look at <laughs> graphs and charts. <laughs> it was very obvious that Paul was the least committed towards this trip, and. After just a month, Paul ended up leaving. He pretty much in his head said, I'll just be there for a month. That'll be enough for George and ended up leaving. Was it enough Uh, for George? 
Well, George decided he wanted to stay a bit longer. Him and John decided to stay in India for another month after Paul left. Well, they got to stay all the time that John didn't. They got to double time it now. That's right. <laughs> they have to make up for it because Ringo also left. Well, However, uh, what's his excuse? <laughs> his excuse was that while he really enjoyed meditation and continued to meditate an hour a day after he left, um, he, he didn't like Indian food. <laughs> you know what? And also, his <laughs> wife didn't like bugs. And she would refuse to leave the room if there was a fly on the door. So she never left the room, and John had to sing her out. <laughs> he had to sing a. That, that's right. He had to write a new song about how he hated flies. And she came out. She's like, "That was that was a pretty nice song." I gotta admit, that's a pretty damn good reason to leave India. If you don't like bugs <laughs> and you don't like Indian food, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> he really liked the meditation aspect of everything. He just was like, "Yeah, I need to go." And you can take and... that part with you anywhere. You can go anywhere with the meditation part. <laughs> That's right. He was like, yeah, I really liked what I learned in India, and I'm glad to be practicing meditation somewhere else. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that John and George were secretly happy that Paul left. I mean, he was known for pretty much making up goofy-ass songs like, um, for example, Rocky Raccoon, the continuing story of Bungalow Bill, which was about a guy who was at India who would go hunt tigers. And he pretty much was just like, yeah, I'm making goofy songs. Isn't that great? And then he left because he was bored. <laughs> this is where we get into the more personal aspect of John Lennon and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. I don't know if I pronounced that right at all. I'm going to call him Yogi from here on out. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. So <laughs> if you start imagining Yogi Bear for any reason, yes, you are racist, but also apparently a lot of the music press was calling him Yogi Bear throughout most of this. So I don't know. I, I don't know who's wrong here. Jack. <laughs> It's the 60s. Everybody was wrong. Yogi was becoming increasingly close to John Lennon. And he was very much getting a lot of success and attention from the fact that he was the Beatles guru. He also was kind of suspicious. He always had accountants with him. And he really liked talking about finances with John Lennon when he was isolated from George. Uh, one of the things that the music press caught on to was he was asking for a week, a week's worth of wages to be donated to his spiritual regeneration movement, which John Lennon thought was fair. He was like, hey, you know what? We're the most commercial group in the world. We're making money off of our music. He's making money off of his teachings. I see nothing wrong with that. What he ended up finding a little bit more suspicious was the fact that he would always advertise that he was the Beatles guru whenever he would go on, you know, speeches or like public speaking events. He would be like, yeah, I was talking to John Lennon and everyone would clap and start throwing money at his face. Also, because Brian was Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, was out of the picture. It almost seemed like Yogi was trying to fit his way into that manager type role. He started talking to John about, hey, your next album, uh, you're getting a lot of really good songs out of this trip. Uh, I was thinking that it would be nice if you donated a quarter of that album's Ooh. profits mm. to my movement, mm. to my spiritual regeneration movement. In fact, I have the Swiss bank account. You could just donate it. Well, you know, well, that's not something that gurus have. I don't. I don't anticipate them being the only like... two people that have Swiss bank accounts, according to the movies, are either people from Switzerland uh -huh. or villains. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so the moment he said Swiss bank account, they should have left. 
But John saw no issue with that. At well, first. he had his own, so why wouldn't he? <laughs> he was just like, yeah, 25% of the profits. Yeah, that's that's more than we would be getting. But he, yeah, that seems fine. He fucking agreed to that? He didn't agree to it, but he didn't see anything that wrong with it. If anything, he was probably thinking about it. Yeah. Because they were getting a lot of songs from their trip there. It was a welcome vacation, and he thought that, you know, he was giving them a service. Maybe this was deserving. It's literally taking just sweet, sweet deals from this guy whose whole profession is putting people into trances and uh, states of suggestibility. It's, it's just like if the local wine tester is like feeding you little ideas about funding his daughter's <laughs> wedding. Hey, I have this blank check here. Go ahead. Have another sip of wine. Are you feeling a little tipsy? Go ahead and s- sign the dotted line here. Soaked in Pinot Grigio. He's like, hey, by the way, like, I was thinking 25% of your salary. <laughs> no, for real. This is really weird, though. So, like, what, is, what does George think of that? There's no way this guy's pushing this angle on George. Oh, no. He, as far as I'm aware, this was very much Yogi getting close with John. As far as I'm aware, George was just happy to be there for the meditation, and he was oblivious to all of this background information going around. He was oblivious to Yogi talking to John about finances because, you know, maybe Yogi knew that George was not there for the business. Maybe he saw that John was a little bit less interested in meditation, but still susceptible towards his teachings and his words. And I think John had a lot of connection with him as a very spiritual person. You know, John found out that he was celibate, that he was completely faithful to his movement and he would never indulge in any of the young female students who were flooding his house. Wink, wink. So, he, he would never do anything wrong, so might as well listen to the guy. I don't know if John Lennon quite knows what celibate means. <laughs> not fucking the 30 people that are throwing themselves at you is not quite the same thing, but I'll hear it out. No, no, at the time, he thought that he was completely devoted. He thought there was nothing going on at the time. Yeah, okay. Uh, And uh, not that I'm referencing anything to happen later, but it was alleged. Even though that Yogi was putting all of these strange financial choices on the table for John to make, you know, heads or tails of, one of the Beatles' friends decided to stop by for a visit. Enter Alexis Martis, the Greek electronics engineer known as Magic Alex. Magic Alex is not known as a fifth Beatle, so don't worry, you don't have to write down another one. But he was very close with the Beatles. But he wasn't so close with the whole TM and Indian teaching thing. He more or less was there because he heard about the local village hooch and was like, oh, I want to take a drink of that. So he showed up. He was like, hey, I want to go on vacation. I heard there was a lot of babes here. Weirdest justification for such an expensive (laughs) plane flight. Such such an egregious use of fossil fuels. I gotta go try this local booze. So he shows up. He's like, oh, hey, John. Hey, George. And he looks around and he's like, yo, this place is like really nice. John and George is like, yeah. He's like, no, really nice. Like, look at the tiles here. You know, like right outside, there's nothing but dirt for like the next entire country, right? You know, like there are like monkeys in the street fucking, but this place looks like a fucking like Trump hotel. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm just saying, this guy's always got accountants by him. He's always got businessmen surrounding him. And George is like, oh, whatever. And he just would go and meditate. And John would be like, oh, you know what? I never thought of it like that. Yeah, those are accountants, aren't they? Yeah, those are those are Swiss bank people. Huh, that's, that's kind of weird. Magic Alex would go around and point out weird shit to John because he apparently was too high off weed to realize that he was potentially going to be bamboozled by Yogi. 
And Magic Alex experiences moments of major clarity when drinking Indian hooch, so. <laughs> In fact, Yogi would approach Magic Alex and say, Hey, are you on to me? Magic Alex would say, yeah. He's like, do you want enough money for your own high power radio station? To which Magic Alex was like, yeah, you're fishy. And he went straight to John and was like, we need to get the fuck out of here. He just bribed me with a radio station and he's supposed to be a monk. Well, that's what monks do, Jack. Come on, that's normal. He's being paranoid. John Lennon would then go tell Yogi that he would give him a quarter of the profits over his dead body. Sorry, I'm not going to be giving you a quarter of the finances. To which Yogi went, Drad, swiper no swiping at it again. <laughs> it took one second opinion for John to be like, hang on, this really dumb idea doesn't add up. Magic Alex also caught wind of the fact that there were a lot of young blonde babes running around getting increasingly bored with the meditations, but still trying to find a lot of free time with Yogi. There are some conflicting reports. Some say there was a particular blonde school teacher. Others say she was a nurse. But everyone kind of agrees that Magic Alex was hearing that she was totally boning Yogi. And he told John this, to which John said, but he's celibate. <laughs> he can't do that. He's faithful. <laughs> this is also the man who is currently boning Yoko Ono while having a vacation with his wife. <laughs> Well, okay, well, but, at least John faithful. Lennon's just like a, just wears it on his sleeve that he's the most woman-hating bastard at this time, so. <laughs> it's, no, it's no big deal. That That's expected behavior, but you, from Yogi, this is a slap in the face. John was absolutely flabbergasted by this knowledge, and he was like, okay, Alex, you're going to have to find, like, definitive proof. So, that night, Magic Alex went snooping around the guru's place. Uh, spying on him, I'm assuming in like an Indian tree with binoculars looking through his window, and totally caught him mid-fuck with the <laughs> young blonde. <laughs> Point out the flaw of Magic Alex to me, because currently he is a superhuman. He's just a cartoon character come to life. He's the sidekick that John Lennon needed in this time. That's what it sounds like, but you have to keep in mind that he's the one saying this, and he's currently the only one who is seeing it like firsthand. He doesn't really have any other person who is saying this other than all the young female students saying that Yogi keeps stroking his, their hair, giving them mangoes, giving them special one-on-one -on -one time. Mia Farrow starts saying that he wants to fuck her and her family. I might be yeah, wrong. But he's the, only, he's the only guy that has any definitive proof. So George actually thought that, you know, maybe he was making it up. To this day, there are some people most of these people very close with George Harrison who said that Ma Magic Alex kind of ruined the trip for uh, announcing that Yogi was having all these sexual allegations brought up to him, that he was fucking everyone, and he wasn't nearly as faithful to his religion as he was claiming to be. They blame Magic Alex for whistleblowing this and said that he was making it all up because he was jealous of John being close with him. <laughs> Come on, man. First it's the charts and now it's this. <laughs> So the Beatles would go on to work for Harvey Weinstein. I mean, hold Jeffrey on. Epstein. No, that's not true. I mean, wait a minute. <laughs> so Magic Alex, despite George being a little bit suspicious of him, all of a sudden saying that this guru, this monk, that George was getting a lot of fascination with was a nasty freak, was like, you know what? There's a lot of allegations. The women are starting to say some stuff. They're getting increasingly uncomfortable with them. 
Maybe we should bounce. There's a lot of me too going around here and it's only 1968. This is probably not a good place to stay. So George and Magic Alex go to get a taxi and they're like, yeah, we need to leave. John, you're gonna have to break up with them because you're the closest with them. So John goes up to the guru, to Yogi. And he's like, dude, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to leave. This catches Yogi by surprise. He's like, well, John, why? We're, we're so close. And then John, with his oh-so-clever wit, says, if you're so cosmic, you'll know why. To Damn. which he gave him a murderous look at which John knew that he did everything. That he was onto him and he was caught and now he's pissed. Damn. Damn. He brought up, he brought up the allegations to which Yogi responds, I'm only human. I'm a total piece of shit, but I'm only human. <laughs> This took his catchphrase, which John held very near and dear to his heart, to a whole new light. His catchphrase being, everyone's got something to hide except for me. To which John decided to write a song called Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey. The song would actually refer to Yoko Ono because of course it did, and how he and Yoko loved to do heroin together. But no, it, it very much was a title that was like, yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, the guru lost his temper, obviously, because John said, yeah, um, I think you're a sexual predator. And apparently he was the one who officially told John and George to get out of there because of all their drug use. Uh, he was sick of them smoking marijuana. He was sick of Magic Alex drinking hooch and spying on him when he was trying to get his freak on and told them to get the fuck out of India. I mean, Magic Alex is a real dirty bird in this story. I, I wouldn't... <laughs> Wrong, if I'm in the wrong or otherwise, I don't want this man peeping my, peeping my mangoes. So begins their trek out of India. They get the taxi and try to get out of there. But the taxi gets a flat tire. The taxi driver says, oh shit, I need to go get a replacement. Leaves the taxi and never returns. They're sitting in the taxi for a while and they're like, I don't think he's coming back. So they get out and they're trying to find another taxi. But all of a sudden, they're all gone. They start getting freaked out that Yogi put an Indian curse on them and personally told the taxi company to stop just so the Beatles couldn't leave India. And thus begins their incredible journey on foot all the way back to England. They had to end up hitchhiking to get back to the airport because literally the taxis just disappeared. You know, that's not an experience white people are used to. And I think this is just a good, this is a good bit of perspective. <laughs> Thank the Lord, they eventually got to the airport, and on the flight back, uh, John would end up writing the song Sexy Sadie, which was actually a reference to how Yogi ruined such a good thing they had in India. Why'd you have to go fuck everything up by, you know, having sex with everyone and being a creep? And he would get blasted on the flight and confess, confess to his wife, Cynthia, that he really loved fucking everyone else but her. Yeah. To which he says, yeah, I really, really love Yoko Ono. Oh, yeah, you'll meet her soon. I'm only human. He's Except only for, human. Forget about it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm not celibate. I'm a rock star. <laughs> yeah, just in case anybody was under the impression that John Lennon was a decent person in this story. No, he, he liked to beat Cynthia quite a bit. He it, knew that was wrong, but yeah, he did that. It took fucking Magic Alex for him to realize that the guru <laughs> was the only person in the room worse than John Lennon. I, I would like to mention that Magic Alex, who is... The true hero of this first act of the of this whole story, in my head, he's Jiminy Cricket. And he just kind of hangs around John and is like, I don't think this is a good idea. I think you're going to turn into a donkey if you smoke that cigar. I didn't like the part in Pinocchio when Jiminy Cricket had to, had to witness the sex scandal by peering through the window. I didn't like that at all. So they all end up back in England. God save the queen. Holy shit. George ends up getting dysentery. 
thinking that he still has the Indian curse and gets increasingly nervous about all of these business troubles they're having. He and his wife end up going to meet up with his good friend and Indian musician, Ravi Shankar. And once he meets up with him, he teaches him a few more things about Indian spirituality. He's a much better friend and gives him some magic amulets to cure his dysentery, apparently. You know what? It worked for Steve Jobs and it's going to work for him. Fun fact, by the way, Ravi is actually the father of Nora Jones. Was he, what? Are you serious? That's just a fun fact. Yeah, serious. Weird. Anyways, uh, Paul would go to the music press who was, at this point, really loving the scandal having to do with the guru back in India. Paul was like, yeah, he's a nice fellow, but uh, we're not going out with him anymore. <laughs> Relationship with guru over. <laughs> <laughs> now, while these allegations have been sort of questioned within the time passing and George really doesn't think that anything really happened and he thought Magic Alex made up all of it. At the time, the Beatles denounced them and pretty much ruined his reputation in the West. So even though, you know, meditation, the art of it was kind of popularized, it was very much separate from the guy who taught the Beatles all of that and kind of separated from India. So that's kind of why that whole new age meditation thing kind of became gentrified with the coming years. Nobody wanted to talk about the fact that the guy who taught everyone that might have been a predator. <laughs> so Spencer, how do you feel now that John and George pushed Boba Fett into the Sarlacc pit and now we're away from Jabba's palace and we're ready to start the main part of the story? Well, like I tell you, Jack, 45 minutes into recording, we're at Act 1, so... <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna I have crack open a cold one and let's do this. <laughs> I will say that... While the recording of their next album, the White Album, the titular self-titled album, isn't nearly as adventurous as this, there aren't as many like crazy events, things just pretty much never did get better. Yeah, this really was the beginning of the end, right? Yeah, and I think that Magic Alex blowing the whistle on a Yogi's infidelities and crazy shit kind of soured George's relationship not only with John, but Paul as well, because Paul didn't even like it to begin with. And now John was sort of, he was phased by it, by the fact that the guy who was teaching him all of this was possibly a creep. He kind of felt more ostracized and he didn't even want to really go in and record another album. He was just too nervous about the fact that they didn't have a manager and that Paul was becoming increasingly bossy. Just hire a guy. Just, you have so much money. <laughs> they never do hire a guy. Paul thinks he's gonna do just fine as a manager that always works that always works out so they have 40 songs that they write in india and they decide to go into the studio and start getting to work these studio sessions were unlike the ones they had previous they were very sloppy they were at irregular hours they didn't really have a set timer where they where they'd all meet up and get together and practice they would just show up when they wanted and they worked on whatever songs they wrote at the time and if another beetle was there oh yeah they'd help work on it but it was a very individual process, which was very weird. They used to have very tight backing tracks that they all perfected, and then whoever wrote the song would get to sort of say, oh, let's try this, let's try that. No, at this point, whoever was there, they would do just a whole bunch of jam sessions and rehearsal takes, and whichever one sounded the closest to being okay, whoever wrote the song would handle all the overdubbing. They would just pretty much say, I got it from here, guys. Thanks for your help. Whatever. You're really not and kidding when you talk about just how many takes went into this album. And let me tell you why. Yeah. If I may. Because 
when we do an episode of Blunder Phonics, Jack, when you give me some homework, I don't listen to just the, any ordinary version, Jack. I, if there's a super deluxe version, you know I'm going to find it. I'm going to sit down and listen to that. Um, oh, which, dear God. Which is why I, <laughs> you know, I really got myself into a stink when I started a five and a half hour super deluxe version of the White Album. Um, I, how could there be this much recorded audio of this album to release? How? The, the, only, the only possible explanation is they all worked on their own shit. It's basically three different people making a different album, and they ended up with just a monster amount of recorded takes and songs. One song, I think it's called Don't Cry or something like that, had 104 takes, and it just never ended up on the album. Nothing to show for it? They ended up releasing it on that giant compilation that you listened to, that super deluxe edition, which I loved and will never listen to again. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they had just a massive amount of material, and it was because they were kind of working on solo albums that were just pretending to be Beatles albums. You would end up having very weird sessions with some of the Beatles or just one of the Beatles working on a song by themselves, and you would have situations where they would end up losing their minds. Uh, during the recording of Helter Skelter, George Harrison would run around the studio with a flaming ashtray on his head. I don't know where that came from, but it was there. You have Ringo screaming how he has blisters on his fingers after drumming for so many takes. By the end of the recording of the album, they had a session that was literally 24 hours long. They were in the studio for an entire day just recording whatever the hell came to their mind. Now, normally, a weird irregular schedule with a lot of people on a different page is bad enough. But you know what makes it worse? When somebody decides to bring their girlfriend. Ugh, women. Ugh, women. Ugh. From, the, from the very beginning, the very first recording session, John Lennon brought in Yoko Ono. And she would continue to be there throughout the entirety of the recording. And apparently, John broke some sort of secret bro code to where they never let their wives or girlfriends in on any recording session because no girls allowed were the boys. Yeah, this is Beatles' boys club. That was actually the original band name before <laughs> Brian Epstein had him change it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no girls allowed. Well, when John brought in Yoko and she had her own artistic ideas that she was sharing with John and influencing him, everyone else got a little bit peeved. Artistic ideas is a bit of an exaggeration, but I'll allow it. <laughs> you know, John went from being the songwriting partner of Paul McCartney to writing songs that had nothing to do with Paul and was collaborating with Yoko way more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And that started pissing people off. Right. I don't want to go on the record as saying that Yoko is faultless or that Yoko is the devil woman that broke up the Beatles. I will say she didn't break up the Beatles, it was John. And I will say that she is a nightmare to listen to her solo performances. <laughs> And I fear being around her because I think she's a witch. I think she's an actual witch that crawled out of a bog. Oh, man. Yeah, whether or not you believe Yoko was a catalyst for the Beatles breaking up or not, it's very clear that there was a lot more to do with just the interpersonal relations with the band. There were already cracks that started to show up that had a lot more deep reasons as to why they showed up. I think it was less to do with Yoko being involved than... Just the fact that John found more entertainment and found more passion working with her than his bandmates. Yeah. And, you know, instead of talking about this like responsible adults, the other Beatles figured, hey, he broke hearts. Might as well bring in our wives. So they would bring their wives in who, frankly, didn't really have that much musical experience. Uh, 
Paul McCartney brought in his girlfriend and they pretty much just sang some backing vocals, did some hand claps, but they were just continually pissed off that Yoko was like, oh, we should, John, you should do a song like this. To which he was like, oh, okay, sure. If anything, you could consider her a fifth Beatle, if you will. <laughs> oh, oh, Jack, how many fifth oh Beatles does God. that make? Because uh, I don't care what you say, Magic Alex, fifth Beatle. <laughs> Magic Alex, fourth Beatle. <laughs> I, I feel like Yoko's presence finally broke the last straw with Paul to where he started openly attacking John's songs. And because Paul started criticizing John, John started criticizing him back because no you. Uh, John was angry with Paul for writing increasingly cloyingly sweet and bland songs. And Paul was mad at John for writing weirdo, unmelodious, harsh and intentionally hard to listen to songs that were influenced by Yoko in her weird artsy fartsy shit. It, it makes sense from both angles. It got to the point where they started writing songs based on making fun of how the other one would write songs. <laughs> and then the other guy would get mad because they weren't invited to play on the song that was making fun of them. Like you have Paul write you have Paul writing, why don't we do it in the road, which was about monkeys fucking on the road in India. And John was like, I would write a song like that. Why didn't you ask me to write on that? And Paul would be like, I introduce you to tape manipulation. Then you and Yoko start making Revolution 9. Didn't invite me to go fuck around with that. So yeah, fuck you. It was just openly hostile. It explains why this album is so bipolar. It jumps back and forth like a chaotic mess from... Super chill, easy listening to this weird artsy fartsy shit, to and then back to like Helter Skelter, which is like the hardest music anybody's ever heard in the entire century. Just, <laughs> which was literally a song that Paul wrote when he heard the Who, and he's like, "People are calling this heavy metal. Fuck those guys. We're the Beatles, and we're harder than them." And then <laughs> blew everyone's eardrums out. <laughs> am, I, am I getting this wrong? Wasn't that the song where where Paul thought he was ripping something off and he couldn't remember what? Like he didn't know if he just got high and thought of it, so he he kept calling everybody that everybody in the music scene and be like, "Did you come up with this song?" And they would like play it into the phone, and they'd be like, "No." Uh, that was actually yesterday. Okay, okay. He thought yesterday was the greatest thing ever written that he couldn't have possibly made it up, so he would play it to people, and he's like, "I'm ripping something off, right?" And they're like, "That's an awesome song." I don't think so. <laughs> but no, at this point, he was very openly like, "You know what? I'm just gonna make a ska song. We're gonna work on Ubla Di Ubla Da, everybody, and I'm gonna make a ska song." He was completely done with making original music and he would just make satirical songs and goofy takes on like folk music, like with Bungalow Bill and Rocky yeah. Raccoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ubla Di Ubla Da is what I would consider the worst Beatles song, not in terms of enjoyability, because I really like the song. Oh, it's fun. It's very but fun. It's a very fun song, but it very much is the one that was the closest to breaking up the Beatles. Like you said, there's a lot of takes on that Super Deluxe Edition, and Ubla Dee Ubla Da was not only the Beatles' least favorite Paul McCartney song, but was also the one that he wanted to perfect the most, which is an awful combination. Yeah, really nasty. Where he was like, John, you're not playing the piano right. And he, at a certain point, John would just say, fuck it. He got blasted, got drunk, and just started slamming on the keys. And then Paul was like, that's perfect, which pissed John off because he's like, I'm playing like shit. What do you mean that's perfect? 
Ringo would try to play drums. He's like, you're shit at drums. Play harder. And everyone was just so sick of Paul's shit. They're like, why is this stupid ska song your masterpiece? You wrote yesterday. You don't need to do this. <laughs> and it's nutty, considering I've heard some of the takes on like, Obla di Obla Da just kind of devolves. You know, it, it doesn't, it's not... There's no grand ideas being introduced to the different versions of it, in my opinion. As opposed to, like, Helter Skelter goes from something very slow and, like, like an easy jam into a proto, like, punk song. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's weird. It's almost like these songs were slowly evolving. But Ubla Dee Ubla Da was, like, Paul's masterpiece where he's like, I need to get this right. I know exactly how it's supposed to sound. And nobody liked it. <laughs> and getting it right just meant pissing off everybody close to him. And considering that Ringo recalls this as the song that almost broke up the Beatles, it, in my eyes, between Paul's perfectionism trying to be the boss and him basically getting mad at John for having a girlfriend who he liked, even though he's married, let's ignore that fact, uh, <laughs> the fact that he was just getting annoyed with John for not being a part of the band and not going with his vision... It makes me think that Paul is definitely the Beatle that broke up the Beatles, in my personal opinion. Because even after this album, he would continue to try to be the leader, which was just not successful because he was just an annoying prick. Yeah, he's a bit neurotic, yeah. Another thing that kind of goes with my theory on this is John's hardest song to record was Happiness is a Warm Gun, which was an incredibly interesting experimental song with a whole bunch of different time signatures and different parts that were probably like five different songs combined into one. But everyone else in the band loved it. They thought it was a very interesting musical song that challenged them, and it made them want to actually play it well. It wasn't a stupid-ass ska song that sounded like <laughs> horseshit. It was like an actually intriguing and engaging pop song that was unlike anything else. It wasn't trying to be a stupid ska song, which Paul was trying to do. So... You have John, who is at least making experimental music that challenges people, and you have Paul that's writing weirdo shit that is basically just, hey, I want to do this genre, but make it funny. You might have noticed I'm not talking a lot about George or Ringo. In fact, you could say that even though that George had more songs that he wrote on this album than any other one, that was pretty much just because it was a double album, and if anything, he had very little to do with the album. Is it true that George did only get one song per record? As far as I'm aware, yes. He pretty much was forced by John and Paul to only write one, which at the beginning of the Beatles was okay because he was kind of learning songwriting and he was okay with kind of learning the ropes, one song, an album. Yeah. At this point, though, he was writing some massively good shit. While My Guitar Gently Weeps, mm -hmm. Hello. <laughs> yeah, like top three stuff, you know? He, he would continue to write more and more amazing songs and would build up a back catalog of songs that he thought was awesome, especially in India. But John and Paul were like, no, you're the guy who writes less songs. We're the main Beatles. We're the main songwriters. And because John and Paul were so focused on, e on their own individual works, George was like, you know what? I'm just going to make my own shit. They're finally not badgering me on only making one song. I've got all these fucking songs sitting around. I'm just going to do whatever I want. He would invite in Eric Clapton, and Eric Clapton would be like, yo, why am I playing lead guitar in a Beatles song? To which George replied, it's not a Beatles song. This has nothing to do with them. This is my song for While My Guitar Gently Weeps. 
He was just actively just making his own songs because John and Paul were so preoccupied with fighting with each other. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of sad because you can listen to this song and the George Harrison songs are wonderful. And it makes me wonder just like, what if John and Paul just wanted to work with him and accept the fact that he was becoming a better songwriter? I guess they just had too much of an ego because, you know, George would go on with each and every album only having a couple of songs to his name. But he would write songs like Here Comes the Sun or something, and they would be just so much better than all of the other songs on the albums. And when he finally made his own solo album, he was like, yeah, I have a triple album of shit they never let me release. It's just really sad to hear that the only reason he got more songs on this is because John and Paul were fighting. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's such a wasted amount of potential. And once it's once it all gets mass released in a triple album, at that point, that's just a nail in the coffin. Because I mean, we've said it before: nobody listens to triple albums. Nobody actually sits down and <laughs> ingests all that content. So when you put it in a triple album, you're like, "All right, it's officially dead," and you chuck it in the dumpster. <laughs> if anything, him releasing a triple album was his statement that. I am a creative songwriter, even though John and Paul don't want you to believe that. Yeah. Even though the third disc of that album was essentially just a huge jam session. No, a lot of the songs on there are magnificent. And it just makes you, like, want to slap John and Paul for just limiting one of the best songwriters of the Beatles. You know, among a million other things that make you want to slap John and Paul. million other things, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. <laughs> but yeah, he would bring in his own musicians john and paul would bring in their own friends eric clapton played on a beatles song which just fascinates me yeah and fun fact this is where eric clapton this is where eric clapton met george harrison's wife patty boyd who he fell head over heels for oh no and she was the inspiration for writing the huge double album layla which is classic rock radio's favorite song of all time but that's another that, story. That never led to, like, an affair or anything, did it? That's for another day, Spencer. Oh, that's no. That's for another oh, day. Oh, Jack. <laughs> they Don't are best set friends, me up though. like this. I, I, you would never sleep with your best friend's wife. No, of course not. Anyway, you might have noticed that I'm saying they're bringing in session musicians, and George is even flexing his songwriting, uh, his songwriting skills. What is Ringo up to? Click, click, drag, paint bucket tool. <laughs> <laughs> Ringo? Out of all of the Beatles was the only one who would always show up to the studio early. He would wait for the band, and he would hope that everyone would get together and they just record as a band again. He was proud of his song Don't Pass Me By, which was the only one he written by himself, but it seemed like most of them were preoccupied with their own shit and barely paid attention to him. Whenever he would try to work with Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney would shit on his drumming and say how much he sucks. For me, this is very heartbreaking, because it just sounded like he wanted to be the Beatles drummer, and he was really proud of his song, but they were so preoccupied with fighting, he was like the child of a divorced couple. He would work with John on a song called Your Blues, and he would be like, hey, we should go pay a visit for, pay a visit to Paul, you know, see what he's working on. They would show up while Paul's recording Mother Nature's Son, and the instant him and John showed up, Paul went from being incredibly happy with the song to pissed. He didn't want to see them, and even though they were trying to work on back in the USSR, he would say, Ringo, you suck ass. Nobody wants you around here. Play better or get out. And I wonder why they don't hang out more often. Well, this, this broke Ringo's heart, and he said, fuck this, I'm out. And he left the Beatles. Paul was known for just pissing people off to the point of them leaving. This doesn't even mean the band 
This also means people who were working behind the scenes. Their producer, George Martin, was somebody who produced every single one of their albums up to this point. Jeff Emmerich was their recording engineer. He worked with them since Revolver, the album that was known as one of the most best engineered albums of all time, and he would only continue to produce more and more wonderfully recorded albums. During the recording of Oobla Dee Oobla Da, George Martin said, hey, Paul, that lead vocal was a little bad. Paul screams, well, why don't you come down and record it then? To which Jeff Emmerich says, fuck you guys, I'm out of here. This is unprofessional as hell. Instantly leaves. Their producer, George Martin, who has been with them since practically day one, decides to take a holiday because he felt like Paul was taking over. They were all doing their own thing. He had practically nothing to do as a producer when before he would give his own creative input and, you know, help them invent fucking new ways to produce albums. He was the one that spearheaded all of these recording techniques. Eh, now the Beatles don't need him anymore. Paul's being a little prick. Fuck it. He left a letter on like an intern's desk, Chris Thomas, saying, hey, I hope you enjoyed your holiday. Good luck producing the Beatles. I'm out of here. Chris Thomas would go on to mix Dark Side of the Moon, so he, at least he wasn't incompetent, but... <laughs> George Martin died last year, didn't he? He did. Yeah, I remember that because it stirred up a bunch of... Uh, you know what? There was a lot of mourning because I believe half the mourners mistook him for George R.R. R. Martin. <laughs> Aw. It was sad. It was sad. <laughs> They're like, oh, who's that guy? Yeah, in between writing the next Game of Thrones book, he would help produce the Beatles. That's what took it so long. That's what took yeah, it so long. Did you know long. that the first Game of Thrones book came out in 1960? <laughs> Who'd have thunked it? But yeah, George Martin, not related to the Game of Thrones writer, uh, just ended up leaving the Beatles. Paul was just becoming increasingly toxic with his leadership. And I think Ringo leaving was when it kind of snapped into everyone's head. This sucks. This album is not fun to record. We have a lot of songs that are just absolutely bonkers. We're not a band anymore. This is kind of sad. When Ringo left, all three of the other Beatles were saying, Ringo, we're sorry how everything's been. Please come back. We're so sorry. Paul was saying, I'm sorry for shitting on you. You're a great drummer. I was just trying to get Oopla Dee Oopla Down to be the best song ever made. Uh, you know, you, that's the main reason why Ringo is not the drummer on all of the songs on this album. I think Dear Prudence had Paul playing drums. Back in the USSR literally features different drum takes of all the other Beatles except for Ringo. And they were just trying their best to get their drummer back. Ringo finally obliged, went back to the studio, and found that his drum kit was covered in flowers from George Harrison saying, Welcome back, which I think is so sweet. It's a shame they broke up a couple years later. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> of the 30 songs they tried to record, only 16 of the 30, just over half, actually featured every single Beatle. They finally finished the production with Ringo coming back to drum, and they decided to finally finish up this weirdo album. They came up with the idea to have a completely white album cover to completely contrast with Sgt. Pepper's incredibly exorbitant, uh, lucid-looking album cover full of colors, very beautiful to look at. This one's just white because this was a more stripped-down album. They were much more sloppy. And while they covered a bunch of different genres, each song on its own was just like, oh, that's just a folk song. It's just a hard rock song. It's the bare essentials of what makes that genre. And they wanted to make a statement with that. They release this white album. They invent, excuse me. This is also the first album 
that got rid of the three-second gap between songs, the first album, at least in mainstream culture, to have songs blend in with one another. Really? Where after one song finishes, it just goes straight into the next one. I never knew this. And some argue it's one of the first double albums, at least in popular music. You would have earlier ones, such as uh, Frank Zappa's Mothers of Inventions, Freak Out. You have Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. But this was the first, like, massively selling double album, where they were making double the profits because it was pretty much two albums in one. The album comes out November 22nd in 1968, and of course, everyone loves it. And everyone clapped. Everyone clapped because it's a Beatles album. But the band started facing a lot of criticism from non-music-related groups. That seems like the group you don't really care what they think, but go on. Well, you would think, but there's a lot of opinions that come with the Beatles at the peak of their popularity. And because this was a sprawling 30-song album, they covered a lot of material. So there were a lot of different messages on songs that a lot of people were looking for. You would have the new left criticize the Beatles for being very apolitical and satirical on an album coming out in 1968, the age of uprising, of social social awareness, and they were chastising the Beatles for essentially not trying to tackle more heavy political themes. Hold up. You know, you have songs like Revolution 1, which are kind of making fun of people revolting, and they were like, you guys are singing stupid shit like oobla dee oobla da. Why aren't you talking about what matters? Why aren't you singing it about Nixon? Haven't they heard back in the USSR? That's a hot political take on how you can fuck women in Moscow. <laughs> they, they would take songs like back in the USSR and they'd be like, instead of criticizing the USSR, you're singing about Moscow girls. You could have said a lot more about Russia. You could have said a lot more about revolutions. And they essentially bemoaned the Beatles for being the most popular group of all time without anything to say. Also to reference your Paul is dead thing at the very beginning, you have the Paul is dead memers looking around for clues. <laughs> and even the Beatles were like, yeah, Paul's not dead. Let's make fun of him on Glass Onion, where they literally say, the walrus was Paul. There's another clue for you. You're all smoking from your Glass Onion. Stop smoking that bong. Paul's alive. And then people were like, oh my God, Paul's really dead. They're telling us. They start playing the album backwards. Paul is dead. Paul is dead. And they're like, no, we're not saying Paul is dead. Stop playing our album backwards. That's the wrong way. <laughs> you idiots. And then they, you did it back. Then you they did look, it wrong. <laughs> then they look to the other side of the room. And they're like, oh, shit. There's Charles Manson. There he is. He listens to Helter Skelter. He's like, Revolution 9. There he is. <laughs> I've been waiting for this moment on the episode. The White Album inspired Charlie to try and start a race war, right? Yeah. He listened to Helter Skelter and Revolution 9, and he was like, oh my god, Helter Skelter means hell. We're all going down a downward spiral. Revolution 9, the ninth book, Book of Revelations. I hate the blacks. It's the White Album. Yeah, what an insightful leap of ideas. <laughs> Blackbirds. Blackbirds need to fly. The black people need to go away. I'm gonna kill people. All of the higher-ups are piggies that need to be slaughtered. Charles. And then the Beatles... Charles Manson would have been inspired by the next fucking, like, burger billboard he saw. He did not need the Beatles' help. All of the Beatles just facepalm because he just goes around and starts creating the Manson family. And they're like, no, dude, Helter Skelter is like a swirly slide. Have you never been to Britain? That's what we call slides. We're talking about going down a slide with our girlfriends. No, stop stabbing people. No. Oh, Charlie. If there was a group looking for a message, there was no better time to live than 1968 where you could look for that message in the White Album. An album that was just full of the Beatles making whatever they wanted 
all of a sudden became a hot spot for weird political and weird controversial shit that they had no intention on talking about. You know what, Jack? It's, it's sort of like, in the end, we were all the fifth Beatle. <laughs> we contributed in a way. Yeah. The Beatles would go on to maybe regret releasing a double album because they literally felt like if they released less music, there would be less controversy and less people trying to look for messages that weren't there. Yeah, yeah, because um, I can say that's definitely true because as someone who likes the, the A Song of Ice and Fire book series, fans definitely don't just start looking for, for meaning and menial bullshit when you don't release a book <laughs> in 10 years, George. The, the fan theories were even ruining music back in the 1960s. 60s. You really can't avoid them. The band would be inspired by all of the weird controversy to try to go back to their roots in 1969 with the album Get Back, which proved unsuccessful because Paul McCartney's an asshole. They would then record their swan album, so to speak, Abbey Road, which was meant as a farewell. The Beatles would break up and in 1970, Phil Spector would slather their album Get Back with strings and huge orchestras, much to the chagrin of Paul McCartney, who just wanted it to be a nice strip back album. Nope, it's an overproduced mess. Ah, fuck it, we're the Beatles, just release it. It's Let It Be, who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah. And the Beatles yeah. dissolved. I mean, Let yeah, It Be- there's a lot- let, let It Be has some gems on it, make no mistake, but it's definitely not their denouement. There's a lot more to the Beatles, but you really look at everything I've just talked about for the past hour, and you just kind of can guess what happened. <laughs> Between Yoko and Paul being a jerk, George Harrison finding his voice. Honestly, the only person who really suffered the most was Ringo, who just wanted it to be a band again. And that never really happened. You can paint a mental picture of the last, you know, four or five years of the Beatles. All the band members, minus Ringo. They're all regular size. They're all playing their instruments. Just shrink Ringo down to like a third of his normal size. And he's just in the doorway in the back, like hanging on to a little piece of paper. It's got his song on it. He's got a little picture of an octopus. He's like, I wrote a song called Octopus's Garden. And John's like, fuck you, motherfucker. <laughs> Hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop, 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 stop. Excuse me, Paul. <laughs> I'm about to say, if you told me Ringo wrote my favorite Beatles song, I was going to leave. I was going to leave this podcast. No, I was meaning Paul shouted at him. If I'm correct, Octopus's Garden is Ringo. Let me check it. I know he sang it. He always sang the stupid songs because nobody else wanted to sing them. It says songwriter Richard Starkey. That is Ringo Starr's real name. So yeah, he did write what? it. What? Yeah, he wrote Octopus's Garden. What? Ringo? Yeah. His name is Richard Starkey? <laughs> Which do you find more surprising, that he wrote one of your favorite Beatles songs, or that his name's Richard? Someone fucking knighted this guy? Yeah, he's a knight now. Jack, this is too much information. <laughs> Change the subject, please. It's weird to think that, yeah, even Ringo himself became a budding songwriter and wrote Octopus's Garden. Uh, that is and, my in favorite fact, Beatles song, and Ringo wrote it. Damn, what a... Alright, get out of here, John and Paul. You're dead to me. <laughs> I guess all of those years of him singing the Beatles' worst songs, all the weird kitty, goofy ones like Yellow Submarine paid off because he finally was like, I'll write my own kid's song. And it's Octopus's Garden and gotta love it. Good Lord. Wow. He's Speaking 79 which, years old. He better not die tomorrow. Ringo, please, for the love of God, don't die. Paul, I love you. You were a bit of a prick, but I still love you. Don't die. Oh, man. <laughs> Paul, Fun fact. At, at least issue an apology, Paul, before you die. Just, just say I'm sorry <laughs> for all of it. Fun fact. Ringo was the first Beatle to release something after they broke up, which you would never expect, and it was called Back Off Boogaloo, which was about the boogeyman getting away. Really? Yeah, that's, that's Ringo. Really? That's Ringo for you. Oh, my God. And then I think George was the first to release an album, and everyone 
everyone loved that one. Yeah, they all broke up. It's all sad. Yeah. Let's go ahead and finally put a cap on the end of this album at the end of this podcast. Spencer, tell me about your hot take, <laughs> your opinion with the White Album. Oh my God. Now you that want... we're finally done talking about India and all that shit. You want my hot take. Well, okay. Ignoring the testimony to unnecessary effort that is the five and a half hour super deluxe version, um, <laughs> White Album is, I've already said, a chaotic mess. Uh, but it's it's easy listening. Like throw it on shuffle and just wait for wait wait to be surprised. I guess maybe you'll get a few like mellow songs back to back and you'll get a mood going. But it's got some of my favorites. Like in my opinion, a Beatles album is really defined for me by its singles because there's always going to be skippable tracks because this shit is sixty years old and it's got it's got some just weird like bubblegum pop shit. That I'm not. Hey, I love that shit. I can't help it. But still, uh, uh, while my guitar gently weeps, Helter Skelter. It's it's good. It's a good album. I really like it. Revolution Nine is really weird, and I, it would it would only be made more complete by Yoko Ono doing a weird moan and banging on a drum. <laughs> I find it funny how you say your favorite are the singles. This album actually never really had those songs released as singles. I think until later. In fact, the singles for this were Revolution which was never on the album. They made a different version, Revolution 1. And Hey Jude, which they were like, eh, we always release songs that aren't on the album. Let's make it Hey Jude, the best song ever fucking made. Eh, let's not put that on the album. I think Abbey Road does remain my favorite of all time. Um, right there with Sgt. Pepper. It's like it's a close tie. They're kind of like a tie for the fifth Beatle, as it were. <laughs> Those albums are the fifth Beatle, really. But you know what, Jack? I think my hottest take is maybe the real fifth Beatle was the friends we made along the way. Aw, yeah. that's so sweet. What do you think of the album, Jack? I love this album. I think it's very much the antithesis of Sgt. Pepper. I actually think that Sgt. Pepper has faltered a little bit. It used to be one of my favorites. But if anything, I find that one a little bit more dated because you listen to it and you're like, yeah, this was 1967. But if you listen to the White Album, there's just so many weird experiments to where if you just played a random song from it and you told somebody to guess what year it came out, they would probably have a hard time if they didn't know. Right. It's hard to see the Beatles going from what they were doing in Sgt. Pepper and do this hard left turn into just experimenting with one genre, one song at a time. I do think my favorite is Abbey Road as well, but I just get so much satisfaction from hearing just all the weirdo shit they do on this album. And I absolutely love it. They're one of my favorite bands. And, you know, it's weird to hear something like this released in 1968 that continues to be the most interesting album ever made. I don't think there's ever been another album released since this one that has been as weird or as interesting and as successful all in all at once. Yeah. And yeah, you gotta love it. Except for Wild Honey Pie. That's a stupid song. <laughs> the dumb shit song. Why, why, Paul? Why? <laughs> John Lennon literally said the song Wild Honey Pie and Honey Pie were beyond redemption. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. We sincerely appreciate your patronage. And I just want to apologize ahead of time uh, when one of the two remaining Beatles dies. I, it's not my fault. This is out of my oh, hands. <laughs> I, I, Please. I, I'm so... Glad that you're optimistic that we're only going to kill one of the two and not just fucking both of them at oh, once. Oh, no. I really hope we don't get a kill streak. That would make my heart break. <laughs> kill streak. If, if that happens, uh, the podcast is canceled. I can't, unless we can just start using it as a weapon for good. 
<laughs> hey, Guns N' Roses is still around. Yeah, you know what? There is no justice. We killed Daniel Johnston and Axl Rose is still breathing. I'm sure he's a nice guy. N- uh, no, he's it. not, Jack. We know this. <laughs> no, he's not. No, we he's not. We know this. He's a menace to society at large. Um, <laughs> and he's not welcome back in St. Louis. You can catch us on Tuesdays every other week. We are semi-weekly. Uh, Jack, you got anything you want to plug? All I would like to plug is my Rate Your Music page, The Dissonant Opinion. Uh, yeah. There you can recommend albums you want us to cover. Uh, I would love to thank Rate Your Music user Jedi Warlock for recommending Daniel Johnson and covering him to us a couple weeks back. Sorry I didn't shout you out in the last episode, but you're also partially responsible for his death now. Shame on you. And I would also like to thank Captain Puffin for not only recommending us talking about the latter-day Beatles and allowing me to talk about one of my favorite bands in detail. Uh, I would like to also say that I am working on a song, and I think in the last podcast I said that I would have more information at this current podcast. I am getting very close to having something I want to release, but I am still working on it. So whenever it's ready to be released, I'll let you guys know, but just stay tuned for that. Spencer, do you have anything you would like to plug? As always, uh, check out The Cock and Bull. It's my brother and I's uh, comedy history podcast. Rate and review Blunderphonics if you got the time to do so. Thank you guys so much. Thank you all so much for listening in on Blunderphonics. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Farewell. Farewell.